is what he has to say about his time in Corinth. You can follow along as I read. Uh, Paul writes to the church, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Let's uh, ask God to bless us this morning as we look into His Word. Lord, thank you for the privilege we have to be here today. Um, Thank you for another day to uh, wake up, uh, to praise you, and to live for you. Lord, I uh, pray that as we open your word today, that your spirit would take the word of God and speak to our hearts. And Lord, I pray that we would be changed, that we would be um, different people when we walk out of these doors today because we have met with you. So we ask that you would speak to us today. Encourage our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in 42 years of church ministry, I've never worn sports paraphernalia to church before. <laughs> but I just thought, you know, after so many years of the Lions not doing well, that it might be appropriate. So, uh, all right. So don't let this distract you. I don't want you thinking about the game. I want you to be thinking about right here. And... Uh, I think the Lions are going to win. After all, what's one of the names of God? He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, right? That doesn't say anything about 49ers. It's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So I think, I think, uh, I think we're going to the Super Bowl. So uh, I'll hopefully wear this in two, two more weeks. All right? All right. Hey, finally got an amen. It took the Lions going to the championship game, but finally got an amen. All right, let me just set the stage here because we're in the book of Acts. And uh, just a brief background on the book of Acts written by Dr. Luke. He wrote it uh, 30 to 60 AD, so it's a period of about 30 years. And he's recording the birth and the growth of the church. It's early church history. And so remember with uh, Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, he's with his disciples. And he says this in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you've been with us through the book of Acts, I've said this almost every week, there's the outline of the book of Acts. The first seven chapters, what? Pentecost happens, the church is born, and there's 120 believers initially. Peter gives a sermon, and now there's 3,120 believers in Jerusalem. And the first seven chapters of Acts talks about that. Then what happens? Persecution comes. A man by the name of Saul, who later became Paul, that we're going to look at uh, this morning, is persecuting the church. So the church scatters. They go to Judea and Samaria, but what do they do? They, They share God's word and share the gospel, and now the church is expanding. That's chapters 8 through 12. The last part of the book is the gospel going to the ends of the earth. How does that happen? Well, that happens through Paul and his companions. And he takes three missionary journeys. We've already looked at the first one, and now we're in the middle of missionary journey number two. I think you have a map in your bulletin that will uh, 
is tracing Paul's second missionary journey. This morning, we're in Corinth. We're in Corinth. So we're going to take a five-minute trip to Corinth. Um, it's going to be on the screen. This will give us some good background about uh, Corinth, and then we'll jump into the text. So uh, let's, let's look at that, and then we'll study the, the text. Today, Corinth has a population of 30,000, and like its ancient predecessor, it is a center of commerce connecting northern and southern Greece, with the nearby Corinth Canal connecting the Ionian and Aegean seas. Corinth was visited by Alexander the Great prior to his rulership, and it wasn't far from here, in the Ithmian Games in 336 BC, that he was asked to lead the Greeks against the Persians. Corinth was destroyed by the Romans partially in 146 BC, but in 44 BC it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar, and Roman Corinth prospered more than ever before, and by the time of Paul it may have had as many as 800,000 inhabitants. Corinth was the capital of Roman Greece. Paul visited this city twice, recorded in both Acts 18 and Acts 20, in the years 50 to 51 AD and 58 AD. It was here in Corinth that he wrote the letters to the church in Thessalonica and also the letter to the Romans. When Paul came here the first time, he was kindly hosted by Aquila and Priscilla, and again he set about going to the synagogue on the Sabbath day where he witnessed to both Jews and Greeks. Paul was able to get some high-profile converts to Christianity, one of whom was named Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, who along with many of the Corinthians believed and was baptized. When Paul came to Corinth, he had a different strategy than when he was in Athens. In Athens, he had met with the philosophers and skillfully reasoned with them. Science was met with science, logic with logic, and philosophy with philosophy. Here in Corinth, he resolved to preach more directly and share the power of the gospel, the story of a crucified and risen savior. His message would anger his Jewish hearers and the Greeks would think it ridiculous, but Paul preached the gospel without apology. It was met with resistance and Paul was going to leave, but the Lord appeared to him and told him that many in Corinth would believe. Whilst Paul was here, he wasn't a financial burden on the believers either here in Corinth or abroad, as he supported himself through his trade as a tent maker. Here Paul leaves a strong example in ministry, whereby his trade supported him and provided him with ministry opportunities he wouldn't have had if he was just preaching. Today God needs men and women who will take Christ into the marketplace and will go where no living preacher can go. Paul would stay for 18 months before he left. The Jews would try to get him tried right here on the Beamer before Galileo, but he immediately dismissed their case. He would travel on to Ephesus, where he would write the letters to the church in Corinth. 
He also met a man there named Apollos who would come here to Corinth and do much public evangelism and door-to-door ministry. It is from his and Paul's ministry where we see that Paul planted the seeds with limited success, but Apollos watered them. As he experienced great success in ministry, people started to compare his ministry with Paul's, something that greatly dishonors God. This attachment to one minister and comparing him as better than others was strongly rebuked by both Paul and Apollos. Some others preferred the ministry of Peter. Paul rebuked all of this saying, is Christ divided? Let no man glory in men. Paul pointed men to the power of the cross. And so today we should not put the work of one minister or ministry above another for such a party spirit does not lead to unity in the church. May we know our place in the world today and whether we are sowing seeds or reaping a harvest, know that neither aspect of ministry is more important than another and God needs all of us working together to spread the gospel today. All right, there's a quick trip to Corinth. So uh, let me give you just a little more background. Uh, Paul came to Corinth from Athens And here's what one commentator writes about Athens and Corinth. Uh, Ray Stedman writes, Athens and Corinth were twin centers of evil in the first century. Athens was the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire. If you're here last week, you discovered it also was the idol capital of, of the world. And as Paul walked around, he saw idols everywhere. Corinth was the center of immorality and sensuality. These two cities symbolize the focus that still seeks to enslave the hearts of people today, intellectual pride and sensual lust. Corinth was the center of worship for the goddess Aphrodite. She was the Greek goddess of love and beauty. A temple dedicated to the worship of Aphrodite was located just outside the city. Every evening, a thousand prostitute priestesses would come down from the temple into the city of Corinth to ply their sensual trade. In fact, the phrase to act like a Corinthian became equal to uh, being sexually unfaithful and sexual immorality. Uh, Those two phrases were were synonymous. And so if if Corinth would have had a, a, a... statement today that would describe the city of Corinth in Paul's day, it would be this, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It would be equivalent to a Las Vegas, or it would be equivalent to um, uh, Amsterdam overseas in Europe. Uh, Corinth was the center of sexual immorality, and Paul goes into that city and addresses the gospel. And so let's look at our uh, outline, and uh, then we'll look at some life lessons here in the next... uh, 35, 40 minutes or so. Uh, A providential connection. Let's read beginning in verse 1, Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. About a 40-mile trip uh, from Athens to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them. So, The emperor Claudius, he reigned from 41 A.D. to 54 A.D. And because there was an uprising of Jews in Rome, he issued an edict that all the Jews had to leave Rome. 
And so where does this uh, Italian couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla end up? Well, they end up 600 miles away in Corinth. Was that by accident? No, as we're going to see, that was what the providence of God. Because we see that Paul then connects with them. And that's what the text says, that uh, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, were, he stayed and worked with them. So how did Paul connect with Aquila and Priscilla? Well, every uh, Jewish student that wants to be a rabbi also had to learn a trade. Paul's trade was tent making. And so when Paul got to Corinth, he was uh, teaching in the synagogue on weekends, but on the week, he was plying his trade of being a tent maker. And so probably, because they were both in the same profession, somehow Paul and Aquila and Priscilla met. Maybe Paul led them to Christ. I, I, don't, I don't know. But because they had this common trade, they meet, and Aquila and Priscilla open up their home, and Paul stays with Aquila and Priscilla during his time there in, in Corinth. So there was this providential meeting that brought Paul together with Aquila and Priscilla. And what did Paul do? Verse 4, as his pattern was in almost every city that he went to, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul always started out in the Jewish synagogue. Uh, the, The gospel, he says, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But as we're going to see, the Jews were not very receptive of Paul's ministry And so that leads us to Paul's pronouncement on the Jews in Corinth. Uh, Pick it up in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, they had stayed behind at their previous stop, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So Silas and Timothy joined Paul. Perhaps they brought a financial gift to him. We don't know. But after Paul had his uh, helpers with him, Silas and Timothy, it says, now Paul's exclusively preaching the gospel. So maybe they took that financial burden off of him with a financial gift. We don't know for sure. But now Paul's preaching the gospel to the Jews, that Jesus is the Messiah. But what was their response? Verse 6, but when they opposed him and became abusive, Paul shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And so the, the Jewish, Jewish people there in the synagogue did not receive Paul's message. In fact, it says they became abusive toward him. Was it verbal abuse? Was it physical abuse? Dr. Luke doesn't tell us. But Paul says, Okay, I've shared God's truth with you. You've not received it. In fact, you've become abusive to me. And so it says that he uh, shook his clothes in protest and, that, and said to them, your blood's on your own hand, heads. I've, I've done my job, and your re- response is your responsibility. Uh, it's interesting, in, in Luke chapter 9, verse, uh, verses 2 through 5, when Jesus is sending out the 12 to minister in various towns, He says this, um, if you are not welcome in that town, leave the town, shake the dust off your feet, and go somewhere else. And that's what Paul's doing. They weren't receptive to his message. So he leaves. Well, where does he go? He doesn't go very far, 
Verse 7, Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. So Paul goes from the synagogue to a place next door, and here's a fellow by the name of Titius Justus. He's a God-fearer, and he becomes a believer. Who else becomes a believer? Crispus, the synagogue leader. That's, that's amazing. The synagogue leader now puts his faith in Jesus. And his entire household believed in the Lord. Many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So here's the nucleus of the church at Corinth. And uh, it's, it's Titius Justus, it's Crispus who was the head of the synagogue, and many other people who heard Paul preach and put their faith in Paul and were baptized. And now there's the, the, the core of a church. Well, let's uh, continue through the text, verses 9 and 10. Uh, we discover God's promises to Paul in a nighttime vision. God's promises to Paul in a nighttime vision. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. So Paul has a vision and God speaks to him while he's in Corinth. Here's what he says. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. You know, sometimes we read about Bible characters in the Bible, and we tend to put them up on a pedestal. You know, the 12 apostles, uh, the Old Testament prophets, But James chapter 5, verse 17, in writing about Elijah, says, Elijah was a man just like us. And Elijah had his ups and downs, and Elijah got discouraged, and the same is true of the Apostle Paul. Our our scripture reading this morning from the first letter to the the Corinthian church uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, and this this isn't, isn't what we think about when we think about who the great Apostle Paul is, But listen to what he says. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. (laughs) I came to Corinth and I was afraid. I was weak. I was trembling. And uh, so Paul has a vision and God comes to Paul and he meets him right where he's at. And uh, the words that God spoke to Paul in this nighttime vision um, encouraged him. I think Paul was probably thinking of leaving Corinth. And God's uh, vision to him said, hey, keep on speaking. Don't leave because why? I'm going to be with you. And by the way, there's many people in the city yet that uh, I need to reach through you. So Paul stays. He stays for 18 months after God speaks to him in that vision. Well, we want to finish up our our text, and then we're going to look at three life lessons here. Um, Verses 11 through 17 is Paul, God's protection of Paul. God's protection of Paul. Uh, Paul stays in Corinth for a year and a half teaching the Word of God. Verse 12, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. We saw that in the video. It's literally called the Bema Seat. They, they are trying to stop the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and so they, they get him and they bring him before the, the ruler 
by the name of Gallio, and they're trying to stop Paul and get rid of Paul. And so the text says, here's their charge, verse 13. This man they charge is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. He's he's not speaking truth is what they're saying. And so they want uh, Gallio to, to get rid of Paul and to kick him out. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, so Paul's ready to speak in his defense, explain his defense, but he doesn't have to say a word because God intervenes through the ruler, Gallio. If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So here's Gallio. He dismisses this case and says, hey, this, this is not to bring before me. You need to take this elsewhere. And he tells him to leave. And God protects the Apostle Paul uh, through a ruler by the name of Gallio. And God had placed Gallio in a place of prominence and authority um, for such a time as this. That encourages me as we're in an election year. (laughs) You know, uh, here we are, and it's already ramping up um, the presidential election. And what we need to realize as followers of Jesus is that God's already got this. Whether it's going to be another four years of President Biden, whether it's going to be uh, another four years of President Trump, whether it's going to be Nikki Haley, uh, there is a movement to try to bring a third candidate. And uh, they, they're, they're working to put a third candidate on a ballot. But whoever it is, God's in control. And history is his, his story. And we can rest in that. Well, God brought Galileo at just the right time to intervene on behalf of the Apostle Paul. And so he dismisses the case. It says in verse 16, he drove them off. Notice how this passage finishes. Then the crowd there turned on Sothenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. So they wanted to take their anger out on somebody. And who did they take it out on? The leader of the synagogue. His name is Sosthenes. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Well, we're going to stop in our study of the text uh, right there this, this morning. And uh, what I'd like us to think about is um, how does this apply to our lives? And what are some life lessons that we can learn from Paul's visit to Corinth? And so we're going to look at three of them this morning. And here is the first one. God providentially places ministry partners and encouragers in our lives. I hope you've discovered that in your life. But God providentially places what? Ministry partners and encouragers in our lives. That was Aquila and Priscilla. How did God connect Aquila and Priscilla and Paul? Well, God connected them because... Claudius issued in Rome an edict to get rid of all the Jews out of Rome, and so God moves Aquila and Priscilla 600 miles east from Rome to Corinth because he knew that, what, Paul needed some encouragement. 
He knew that Paul needed what? Some ministry partners. And Aquila and Priscilla became key partners with Paul in the ministry of the gospel. And so uh, Paul was greatly encouraged through the ministry of Aquila and Priscilla, and they became his uh, partners uh, not only in Corinth, but in several other cities in ministering the word of God. And so we need to realize that ministry is a team sport. And if we try to do ministry alone, if we try to live the Christian life alone without other people and encouragers, we're going to fail miserably. A little acrostic team, together each accomplishes more. Uh, One small illustration of that is these little audio Bibles. As we come together, throw our change in a little box, we're what? Going to make a a big impact in in the world and and for for the cause of the gospel. And so God providentially places ministry partners and encouragers in our lives. You notice in the missionary journeys that are we're studying in the book of Acts, no one's going alone. They always have a partner, don't they? It's Paul and Silas, or it's Barnabas and Timothy, but, but no one's being sent alone. Luke chapter 10, God's, uh, Jesus sends 70 laborers out to do his work. What's he tell them? Go two by two. Don't go alone. Go two by two. And so... God providentially places ministry partners and encouragers in our lives. Diane and I have experienced that in our lives, um, in our in our ministry. I was thinking back to uh, our days of seminary back in uh, Grand Rapids. I was going to Grand Rapids Seminary. This is 1977 to 1981. And uh, God connected us with a uh, ministry couple that uh, had been in ministry in a church in Ohio and had now gone back to seminary. The couple's name was Louis and Mona Kanapka, a good Polish name. And uh, I began to work for Louis. He had a painting business that he he ran, and uh, that helped uh, our funds going through seminary. But what Mona and Louis did to us is they kind of adopted Diane and I. They had uh, two young children at that time. Uh, They lived in a very nice house in East Grand Rapids. They would have us over for uh, dinner often. We would do things socially together, and they just reached out and encouraged us during those seminary days. I think about um, our ministry in, in Chelsea, and we were there for 14 and a half years. And another couple that God providentially brought into our lives to be ministry partners and encouragers. Their names were Everett and Ruth Berkey, B-U-R-K-E-Y. Now, this is some almost 40 years ago, probably 37, 38 years ago, but I still remember the first time I met Everett. It was at my uh, our, our first Sunday there, officially as a pastor. He came up to me and he says, my name is Everett Berkey. It rhymes with turkey. I never forgot that. I did call him Mr. Turkey a couple times, but I think, no, I, I, I didn't. It just stuck, stuck with me. Everett Berkey rhymes with turkey. Everett was an engineer. Ruth was an elementary music teacher in the schools uh, in Ann Arbor. 
Everett and Ruth were probably 30 years older than Diane and I. Um, we kept track of them for many years. I, I imagine they might be with the Lord now. I don't know. But they, never, they didn't have any children. And uh, so what they would do in the church is just like adopt, adopt families, adopt kids, and just uh, bless them and encourage them. Ruth loved music, and so she would often play the piano. Uh, Everett was on our board. They would quietly work behind the scenes, and if there was anybody that had any need, uh, they would look to meet that need or to reach out to a hurting person and just minister to them. Probably told this story before, but I'll, I'll tell it again because it's so uh, just significant of the way that God brings partners and encourages into our lives. So here we are uh, in Chelsea. We're, we're relatively new there. Uh, we have three young boys, and we're living on a very, very tight budget. And, uh, and so there's not a lot of room for extras. And uh, one uh, Friday or Saturday, the Berkeys uh, invited us to come over for dinner. But uh, here was the plan. Uh, Ruth said she's going to go shopping, clothes shopping with Diane, and then at a certain time we'll meet back at the Berkey's house for dinner. And I thought, well, that's kind of a good plan. I, I certainly don't want to go shopping. Um, but to be honest, I was a little bit concerned because, you know, I'm always kind of watching the bottom line, and, and, and I knew there weren't a lot of extra funds there. So they're gone, they're, they're shopping for two or three hours, and now I'm, I'm at the Berkey's house, and I see uh, Diane and Ruth pulling in their car, and Diane gets out, and she's holding all these packages, like <laughs> a lot of packages. And I'm starting to get actually a little, like, upset and angry, because, like, we don't have the money for all these clothes. And she's got a big smile on her face. And I discover as she kind of pulled me aside, she said, when we went shopping, Ruth said to me, um, I'm going to clothe you from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. And Ruth bought her shoes, and Ruth bought her dresses, and Ruth brought her, I don't know what all else, but there was a lot of packages. When I found that out, I felt like a turkey because I, you know, I'm like, man, I... I kind of jumped to some wrong conclusions. You know how much that encouraged us in our ministry? To have somebody care enough to do that. God providentially places ministry partners and encouragers in our lives. Now, I could go on this morning and begin to list some names, and many of you that are sitting right here, of how you've ministered and encouraged and and partnered with us in our ministry here at Community Bible Church. I'm not going to do that because I'm going to leave somebody out. But you have been a great encouragement to us. But God providentially places ministry partners and encouragers in our lives. He did that for the Apostle Paul through Priscilla and Aquila. And uh, he'll do that for you. And uh, ministry is not a, a solo sport. We need, we need teamwork. All right, secondly, our evangelism efforts should focus on those who are receptive to the gospel. Our evangelism efforts should focus on those who are receptive to the gospel. So here's Paul. He's preaching in the synagogue, Sabbath after Sabbath, and he's not getting any response. In fact, they're giving him pushback. They're becoming abusive. What does Paul say? 
I'm moving somewhere else. (laughs) I've shared the truth with you. I've shared the gospel with you, and you're not receiving it. And not that you ever totally write somebody off, but Paul's got a burden for people, so he goes next door, and he finds Titius Justice, and he finds the the head of the, the synagogue, Crispus, and his family, and they come to faith in Christ. And so... Uh, the lesson for us this morning is that we need to focus our efforts, what, on, on those who are receptive to the gospel. It's one of the reasons that I uh, like our Awana program that uh, reaches out to kids in our own church and kids in the neighborhood. Children'sMinistryOnline.com says in the U.S., nearly 85% of conversions to Christ happen between the age of 4 and 14. In other words, most people, 80% or more, come to faith in Jesus between the age of 4 and 14. What's that tell us? That children are receptive to the gospel. In fact, Jesus said, unless your, your heart becomes like a child, a childlike faith, you won't enter the kingdom of God. So the Iwana program uh, being used to reach over 5 million kids every week. And every week on Wednesdays in the Fellowship Hall, we say to pledge the Iwana flag. And it goes like this. I pledge allegiance to the Iwana flag, which stands for the Iwana clubs, whose goal is to reach boys and girls with the gospel of Christ and to train them to serve him. And so there's fertile soil in the hearts of boys and girls uh, between the ages of 4 and 14. Well, we need to focus our efforts on those who are receptive to the gospel. The third uh, truth here as we begin to wrap this up, life lesson number three, during difficult seasons of our lives, we must continually focus on the promises of God. During challenging times in our lives, where does our focus need to be? We need to go back to God and the promises of God. And that's what Paul did. God came to him in a night vision, and here's Paul, and he says, hey, I was weak, and I was afraid, and I was trembling, and not sure I wanted to stay in Corinth. And what does God do? He, he appears in a vision. And he speaks directly to Paul. He gives him three commands and three promises. If you want to look back on the text, it's back in uh, Acts 18.9. The Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Here's the commands. Don't be afraid. Number two, keep on speaking. Number three, do not be silent. And so... Paul, don't let fear overtake your life. Don't let fear make, help you make a wrong decision. I want you to keep on speaking. I want you to not be silent in sharing the gospel. And then he gives three promises. For I am with you. The second promise is no one is going to attack you and harm you. Now, Paul's already been through a lot in his uh, missionary journeys. He's already been beaten. He's already been in prison. He was stoned in Lystra and left for dead. And God encourages him in saying, hey, you're, you're not going to face that here, at least of physical abuse. Uh, the Jews turned against him. 
And here's the third promise, because I have many people in this city. Paul, don't be discouraged. Keep on preaching. Keep on sharing God's truth. Why? Because there's a lot more people in the city of Corinth that are going to come to faith in Christ. And so during difficult seasons in our lives, what's our focus need to be? It needs to be on God and his promises. Some of us might say, man, I wish that, uh, wish that God would come to a vision, and, and a nighttime vision, and speak directly to me. He did that for Paul. That could happen today. But God has already spoken to us, hasn't he? We already have 66 books. We already have the Word of God. We already have many of His promises. And so what we need to do is make those promises our own and claim them. So there's an old hymn that says, every promise in the book is mine. I don't know who wrote that hymn, but uh, might be a nice hymn, but it's not true. Not every promise in the book is directed toward you. There are some promises in the Bible that are given to the nation of Israel. There are some promises that are given to uh, the church. There are some promises that are given to individuals. Jeremiah 29.11 is one of the great, great verses that many people claim for a verse, and it is a great verse. Just to understand the context that was given to the nation of Israel while they were in Babylonian captivity. For I know the plans I have for you, plans not to harm you, but to give you hope in a future. That was given to the nation of Israel while they were in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, and God's saying, I'm not done with you yet. Now, can we claim that uh, truth and apply it to our lives? I think we can, just understand it was given to the Israelites. So not every promise in the book is ours. That's why we need to understand the context and who it was given to. But where where do we need to turn when life gets tough? We need to go back to God's promises. And that's what God did for Paul. I'm going to be with you. No one's going to harm you physically. And you're going to still reach many people in the city of Corinth. What promises do we need today? There are so, there are so many. Uh, the promise of God's presence, as Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, never will I leave you or forsake you. You're never alone. Why, God is always with us. And sometimes we don't, we don't feel that he's with us and we can't make decisions based on our feelings. They're a horrible indicator. We need to make decisions based on the truth of God's word. It was the atheist professor that wrote on the board uh, in the classroom, God is nowhere. And a student came up after the lecture was over and rewrote those letters and just shifted them a little bit and wrote on the board, God is now here. And it's all about our, our, our focus and our perspective. So uh, God is with us. The promise of his presence, the promise of his peace, Isaiah 26, 3. Thou wilt keep in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on their problems. No, whose mind is fixed on God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't be anxious about anything. Stop worrying, he's saying. But in everything with what prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And then what's the promise? The peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts, your emotions, your minds in Christ Jesus. It's like being in the eye of a hurricane. 
You can have trouble all around you and storms in your life, but if you're trusting God, you're in the eye of the hurricane, and you can experience peace even in the midst of trials. Uh, The promise of God's provision, Philippians 4.19, but my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. God will supply your needs, and he will, we can trust him for that. Uh, the promise of God's power, Philippians 2, for it is God who uh, works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. It's the power of God that works through us to accomplish his purpose. The promise of God's uh, purpose in our life, even in the midst of pain, Romans eight twenty eight. For we know that in all things, God works together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We may not understand it, but but God is working even in our pain to accomplish what? His purpose and our spiritual good. I don't think it was fun for Aquila and Priscilla to be told, get out of Rome and uh, move 600 miles away and live as a refugee in a new city. Probably wasn't easy, but it was part of God's plan to connect with Paul to accomplish God's plan and God's purpose. The whole book of 1 Peter theme is pain with a purpose. It's written to first century Christians who were under persecution, and the Roman emperor Nero was making it very, very difficult. Uh, But if you understand the purpose of pain, uh, that gives us hope. Uh, The promises of God. How about this promise? It's all through Scripture. Jesus is coming again. He's coming, just like he came the first time. And you read the Revelation, the last chapter, he says three times, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. He says, I'm coming soon. It means I'm coming quickly. And so that gives us hope as we look around the world in which we live in and we realize, hey, our citizenship is not here on planet Earth, but there's a day when Jesus is coming and he's going to take us home to be with him. And so shall we be with the Lord forever. And that gives us hope and that gives us encouragement. So no matter what you're going through right now, and uh, most of us have stuff on our plate, uh, where do we turn? We turn to God, and we turn to the promises of God. And uh, that helps us to make our way through whatever God's got on our, our plate. So three life lessons. God providentially places ministry partners and encourages in our lives. I hope you found that to be true. I hope you can be one of those encouragers to somebody that's uh, working in ministry and be their ministry partner, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through finances, whether it's through participation. Our evangelism efforts should focus on those who are receptive to the gospel. If you have grandchildren, that's the stage that we're we're at and uh, have six number sevens on the way. And my daily prayer is that they would all come to Christ. They would all come to know him and to walk with him and to focus our efforts on on, uh, making sure they know and understand the gospel. And lastly, whatever you're facing, God's got hope and God's got a promise for you. I trust that encourages you. Let's, Let's pray together this morning. Lord, thank you for these lessons that we can learn through the Apostle Paul. Lord, thank you for his drive and his commitment Uh, to continue on uh, sharing and ministering even through difficult circumstances. Lord, I thank you for ministry partners through so many years that have 
uh, encouraged uh, our ministry. I thank you for so many people here at Community Bible Church that have been an encouragement and ministry partners. And Lord, may we not be discouraged in doing well. May we keep on looking to uh, serve you and finish well. Lord, uh, for those that are going through a challenge right now, Lord, I pray that they would cling to the God of all hope who gives us promises that he'll never leave us, that he will supply for our every need. Lord, and that someday you're coming back for us and we'll spend eternity with you. May that encourage our hearts today. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.